You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, broadcasting today from the charging station at the Macquarie Centre in Sydney next to the Star Car Wash, which you might be able to hear in the background. And joining me in his normal um, abode, his normal office, I think, is David Leach from ITK. David, how are you? Uh, well, thanks, Giles. And it's been a week to reflect uh, that sometimes it's uh, better to travel than to arrive. I think in the in the case of our exciting interview this week with uh, Brett Redman, uh, CEO of AGL, which has had a pretty big announcement. Well, absolutely. Um, uh, listeners will probably be aware, uh, at least by now, that um, AGL has announced a big split into two businesses. And uh, we caught up with him just a few moments ago. And um, here's that interview with Brett Redman. Brett Redman, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast again. My pleasure. It's been a busy time. You've just announced the uh, intended split of AGL into, I guess, um, well, new AGL and Prime Co or good and bad or green and whatever, um, although it's a bit more complicated than that. Can you just explain the timing of it now? Because there seems to be so many details which are not revealed yet. And I guess the biggest question for everybody is, does this mean an accelerated exit from coal or not? So yesterday we announced that we were separating, we planned to separate uh, the business into two strong businesses. So they were New AGL, which will become Australia's largest multi-product energy retailer, and Primeco, which will become Australia's largest electricity generator. So deliberately creating two big, strong businesses, which, as I'm sure we'll go through a little bit of the detail, means that that, that under the hood, um, there's quite a lot going on to set them up for success for our customers and, and for our communities. From a timing point of view, one of the things I've talked about a lot over the last 12 months is how why the trends in, in the energy market aren't a surprise in their own right, what we've seen is a big acceleration of those trends. And so we, we had the choice to sort of keep going at the pace that we were going or accelerate our, our own response to it. So what you're seeing in yesterday's announcement is us moving at pace now to make sure that we keep pace with the market and create two big businesses that, that recognise they will have different roles to play in energy transition going forward. Um, the first um, new AGL, um, I think quite excitedly, um, is carbon neutral on day one. Now, that's carbon neutral by scope one and two emissions, which is your typical big corporate test. Um, but let me um, uh, absolutely own that from a scope three point of view, it will have plenty of products that it's selling, like electricity and gas, that will still have carbon in there. Um, but again, by the end of this financial year, by 30 June, every single product that AGL sells will have a carbon neutral um, offset option. And then from there, You've created the systems and the processes to first engage with customer where they want to do it. You're looking at the, how you're sourcing your energy. So you're starting to shift um, your sources of supply into low carbon and no carbon sources. And you're well and truly on that journey to carbon neutrality. Um, from a prime code point of view, um, they have a different role to play in energy transition. Um, there's no shying away from they'll close. Um, we, we've restated the backstop dates again yesterday. 
um, and we've talked about the forces of change that will that may change their path and timing um, anchored around customer community and technology. Um, but the role that Primeco has to play first and foremost is to put that big baseline baseload backbone of energy and electricity into the system as everything is changing around it. So as we're building new technologies, as we're investing in batteries, as we're putting um, other renewables into the system, the market's going to need um, the generation capacity in Primeco to be the reliable steady source there while things are being built around it, even as it's preparing for eventual closure and thinking about how it repurposes its sites for that future and again, yesterday we talked a lot about um, seeing sites like Loyang and Macquarie become energy hubs of the future. And we started to lay out a vision of all the different types of energy linked projects that we're starting to put onto those sites. Brett, it, uh, uh, it, yesterday's announcement seems very preliminary compared to other demerger propositions that have been put to investors that, that I've looked at. It was no financial data, not even, as I understand it, a certainty of a separate listing. And, you, you know, you've announced right up front you're looking for feedback and, you know, almost like flying a kite. I, I just wondered why you've done it in such a preliminary uh, fashion, you know. But won't that actually just create uncertainty and make it harder for investors right now? I, I think, David, it, it's a lot more anchored than, than flying a kite. I think there's a lot of rich detail there. The challenge that we've got is most emergence, uh, most things like this um, are where you have a very distinct business unit or division that you're looking to spin out. Um, recent classic example, Coles Meyer and um, West Farmers. So very clear business that you're talking about. So it's actually very easy to put numbers around it and to be really straight up and down as to what it might mean financially as well as in concept. Here, what we're talking about is separating the two businesses that are currently very intertwined. Um, so big, long, complex process, first of all. The second thing, therefore, is there are two parts of the conversation. Part one is landing properly the strategic rationale both for separation and for what these individual businesses are there to do. Step two is then getting into more the nit and grit um, of, of how will you value them, how will you finance them, uh, what capital structure will you put in place. And, and, I, and I should say in answering questions, you know, we've been pretty clear that we, we've presented an internal separation, um, but, but outright demerger is, is a very live option that we'll have in discussion over the next few months. Um, we need to then go to the, the, the next stage. We'll publish that, that next detail with all numbers around it. Um, but I think what we needed to do first was not effectively wait for another three months to finish all the detailed modelling, but to get out there with the core concept. And, and I'm actually really encouraged that all the conversation really is going to debating things like how to value them and, and how will they be financed, as opposed to I'm, I'm not seeing any particular pushback or rejection to the idea that separating into two businesses makes sense. So from my point of view and communicating to the market, that's success. You know, we've landed the big concepts um, and we're only three months away maybe from coming back with going, OK, now here's what the spreadsheet looks like. Let's have that conversation. Uh, so, uh, so uh, again, traditionally, uh, the idea behind a Gentailer is that there's integration value. Um, one of the questions that comes back is, will the value of the parts be greater than the value of the whole? And I guess I've got a lot of ideas about that, but how, how, do, you, how do you see it yourself? I, I think what we're seeing is the traditional Gentailer model is breaking down. Um, that, that kind of classic 
strategy and classic linkage, which was all about managing risk in a in a highly volatile and and um, somewhat pure market, um, uh, made a lot of sense. You know, for AGL and others globally, it was the classic model that everybody followed for the last couple of decades and more. Um, but more and more, what we're seeing is new generation, particularly being built in response to um, government demand in one sort or another, whether it's direct agreements, off-takes, in some cases, government building it directly, as well as corporates more and more entering into direct relationships and, and off-takes that, that will underpin the generation part of the business. So in that world, the clear and, and, and absolute linkage between the two businesses um, is not what it used to be. So then what you start to look at is um, a generation business that is, uh, and I'll use loose terms knowing that, that, that talking to people like yourself, you'll, you'll pull me apart on them, um, but you're in the nature of baseload. Um, without getting too technical, um, and that will have a role to play to just pump you know, bulk energy into the market. Um, but the, the retail business increasingly is looking to manage risks through capacity management. Um, so that's your batteries, um, your, your pumped hydro, your gas peaking. Uh, AGL has been talking about that for the last couple of years as well, leaning into wanting capacity management rather than just baseload. So in some ways, you see the evolution of that starting to appear now and baseload um, will be able to sell to you know, um, a variety of longer term off takers. Um, uh, retail will look for how does it manage risk better and better, but managing risk will be more through the management of capacity as opposed to the management of just basic energy cost. So I, I think that's very interesting. One more quick, there's about a million things I could ask, uh, but I want to hand back to Giles shortly. The thing that strikes me is the relationship with power, um, which is the renewable uh, supplier that AGL has only a 20% interest in, but which is now 1.3 gigawatts with a, you know, I think a very ambitious agenda. In some ways, it's going to be competing with the new AGL. And, you know, I'm just wondering how you see that relationship evolving over time as power itself grows stronger. I mean, you know, that's just yet another thing to be thought through. So so I, I think, and... Um... The, the setup of power and its relationship with new AGL, I, I, I think people will, um, uh, their understanding of it will deepen as we see projects um, come out. Um, I think it's a great cornerstone of what the new AGL business will be. Because if you think about it, new AGL increasingly will want to source um, bulk renewable energy along with its capacity management. Um, having a, a very big seat at the table um, with what what is now... Um, once again, the, the biggest developer of renewables in the country. Um, AGL has always been the biggest private backer of renewables. Uh, we continue that role now more through power than anything. Um, uh, with 20% of the equity, which is not a bad investment, but, but I recognise it's not a natural investment from a returns point of view for AGL shareholders. It's an infrastructure-style investment directly as equity. But, but it's not a bad investment in, in its own right but it gives us access to 100% of the output um, and the ability to contract as those projects come to, to market. And if you think about how much sourcing that new AGL is going to want to do, 
uh, I, I think you'll see it's going to be a powerful partnership, no pun intended, um, uh, that will set both of those businesses up in the future. And UAGL won't just be looking to source from power. It's going to need a lot more than that again. So it will keep looking at, you know, how can it underpin other contracts and other uh, developments around the country? I'd like to get back to my original question, which is about the pace of transition and the exit from coal. I mean, we talk about Prime Co, and I guess the general expectation is that um, the world's going to have to accelerate its efforts to get to zero emissions. So where does that leave Prime Co then as an ongoing concern? Is there an ability for it to also um, accelerate its transition away from dirty fossil fuels? And what would that book business look like in a zero emissions environment? So so through the lens of Prime Co, it, it inherits you know, that part of the AGL narrative that, that's always been mindful of as a responsible citizen, you know, we do have a role to play there in keeping the lights on. And, um, you know, as, as I know, you know, um, we can't shut down in 24 hours. You know, the, the you know, we've, we've got to keep significant amounts of energy coming from thermal generation for a long time to come. Um, we've we've always been upfront and clear about you know how we think about what will change the, the pace of change. So and the way the way we've always articulated it is through the lens of customer community and technology. So we see customers now in a big acceleration even in the last twelve months, uh, and particularly at the corporate end of town, of customers hunting for um, low or no uh, carbon energy, uh, and so that will shape you know the product set going forward. Um, we see community continuing to articulate for a, a, a low or no carbon future. So the pace and somewhat will be dictated by community through government and regulators. Um, we also see technology coming in and increasingly changing the shape of output. So, so, so then you start to sort of talk about, we haven't changed the backstop, technical backstop dates of those plants, but we are starting to talk about how we're running the plants in an evolving and accelerating market. So some of the presentation yesterday was recognising that the plants will start to cycle more. Um, uh, part of that's in response to renewables in the, in the market at different times of the day will push out thermal. So you see us talking about more cycling of our units. Uh, there was a graph in yesterday's presentation that, that started to articulate that in a pure volume sense, um, we see volume coming down, um, even if it's only a small amount in the short term, but starting to come down compared to what it might have been producing in, in previous years. So all of these things are signs of a business recognising that change is happening and being responsive to it. While at the same time, we spent a lot of time yesterday talking about how we can repurpose those sites, the energy hubs of the future. Um, we've got genuine and real projects being built on these sites that will outlive the coal-fired generation. And we're thinking about in the Prime Co context too, about how it can also invest in the intermittent baseload of the future, which is consistent with its strategic rationale, which is projects like wind. Um, it can start to reshift um, and use right. its expertise into yeah. that um, uh, we're very conscious of the time. I've just got one quick question, then getting back to new EG, AGL and this uh, this focus on the retailer, on the consumer, on batteries, solar, electric vehicles and other things. There's going to be a lot of new competitors in there. There's going to be the Googles and the Amazons and all the others. How confident are you in the ability for um, traditional gen tailors, as you say, that model is broken, but how can they compete with these all these new competitors? Because that's going to be the basis of your survival, isn't it? It, it, it is, and I'm looking forward to the fight. Um, uh, I would say to you that um, in in my years as CEO and before that as CFO, a regular question was, 
um, big global competitor, sometimes a tech co company, now sometimes an oil and gas major, sometimes a different participant. So insert big global name uh, is coming into town to eat your lunch. How are you going to go? Uh, I'll back us all day, every day, and our ability to connect with our customers, to be responsive for what they're looking for, and to source the products that they're after. If you've heard me talk in other forums, I've always said, first and foremost, I, I want a big customer base, and then I want to. So I'm finding products for our customers as opposed to customers for our products. And with that customer-first mindset, you see things like we're now the biggest multi-product energy retailer in the market and we continue to grow. We've got the best NPS score of the, tier, of the tier one players in the market. We continue to expand the product set with, with good take up. So I see the threat and I'm ready to meet it. I'll be interested to see how the platform business goes. Uh, you, you, you and um, Origin both have one now and it's great to see you've both got positive NPSs. So that's a big improvement from where you were. I, I, I'm, I'm more than ready to compete with anybody, and I, I come back to our published numbers as my proof point <laughs> that we're doing okay. Good on and, <laughs> and the customer is winning because of it. Brett, thank you very much. We do appreciate your time today. We have so many other questions we'd like to ask about floating solar, electrothermal, solar storage, and all the other things. But look, thank you very much for fitting in, and um, all the best. No worries. These are exciting times. Pleasure to catch up. That, of course, was Brett Redmond, the CEO of AGL. David, um, as you say, you've been an analyst for a long time, seen many demergers. Um, never quite one with this few details. Uh, what do you make of it or what is the market making of it? Well, I think the market was hoping uh, for a bit more, to be honest. It's very difficult to value anything when there is no financial data. I think there's an expectation that the Generation Co, Prime Co, as they're calling it, will be set up as a kind of yield play and will have enough, uh, um, be able to cover whatever debt is allocated to it and, and its eventual uh, closure liability, which is not insignificant. And it's hard to understand how it will reimagine itself, but until you see the management teams and the boards, and as he said on the pod, in the interview, it's not even completely certain that they'll be separately listed yet. So in a sense, it's all a big yawn until we get a few more details. <laughs> I guess one of the big questions is about this exit from coal-fired generation. I mean, they're sort of um, they still holding those sort of back, what he calls those backstop dates, so 2035 and 2048 uh, for Loyang. But clearly, he talks about cycling. They talked yesterday about mothballing. There's clearly a potential for an early exit. I mean, that must happen, I guess, if we're going to reach zero emissions. So, um, but it seems strange that they're sort of, um, they're not really spitting this as good and bad. They seem to be describing Primeco as not so bad and with a potential lifeline to adapt to sort of larger renewables or other things. But it's not clear to me exactly how that might work as a standalone operation. Yeah, they're, they're not exiting coal. You shouldn't see a demerger as as one side exiting. That, that would be very bad uh, way to describe it in a legal sense. In all seriousness, you know, you can think about a company that has an asbestos liability that sold everything off and was only left with the asbestos if you see what i mean mm. uh, that's not the way to think about it they're splitting it into the the, the the people that owned it before will own exactly the same things afterwards but they'll just have two two separate bits one they can that they can sell and deal with separately and which will therefore be valued by the market separately according to the market's assessment of the prospects of each one 
Um, so, so the you know the question is what what can each business do uh, going forward, and uh, that will come down to the you know the execution capability of the management teams and and the strength of the businesses. Uh, even even the new AGL will still have to find a way forward. It's got a lot of customers, which is great, uh, but it's still got to find a way to actually grow its business. Uh, uh, looking forward, I mean, Origin, for instance, uh, as as an alternative, doesn't have a lot of coal generation, only one of them, but it still finds growth in its in its um, uh, Gentile business fairly difficult. So there's a there's a lot to work through. Mm. I mean, Brett Redmond was pretty clear that the Gentile business is not the model that um, will carry any of these companies forward. So can we expect similar restructures from, um, I guess, Origin, I guess, Energy Australia and even the government owned Snowy Hydro? It's it's brand identification is the, is the term that I'm using, Giles. And that is, what do you actually stand for? If you're Origin, you know, are you a gas company really or are you a a clean energy retailer in the same way that, say, Octopus in the UK, which, you know, is a brands itself as an innovative, aggressive, uh, uh, disruptive force, very focused on what young clean energy people want or people interested in clean energy. You know, what do you actually stand for as a company, your values? I think, you know, without wanting to dwell on it too much, Agile probably actually almost covered its cost or probably has covered its cost of buying Loyang and of buying MacGen uh, in the net present value sense. But the share price hasn't gone up because in the end, investors buy the future. And, and uh, you have to be able to convince investors that there will be cash flows and earnings something for them to invest in for the long term. And that's always the challenge. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, it's all going to be for the for, for the new AGL and I guess the other companies about sort of battling for that market share with the consumers and the behind the meter market, which is going to be so critical. Might we want to see? Might we see some time a day when we don't actually see the brands Origin and AGL and Energy Australia, but we might see something completely different, like Octopus and Ovo, these other sort of you know, these these new ventures, these new flat platforms that have emerged. I, I think that. Is, is possible. And as I said, it's actually very exciting. There, and there are tons of opportunities. And we're still at the very dawn of the new system in the sense of, um, you know, how the control is going to move away uh, from, from, from these big thermal generators as they exit the system and move to a new control scheme, uh, which might be all these uh, something else like network street level microgrids, you know, community based and sort of a bottom up approach that some aggregator, and that's what a platform is all about can nevertheless make into a big business for, for itself. I mean, there's a lot of different business models out there. And uh, all we know is, or at least I think I know, is that the big thermal generators are going away. What's going to be left afterwards is, is still very, and who's going to own it, is still very much up for grabs. Mm. One of the things which has confused some observers, and we didn't really get an opportunity to ask Brett um, the question about this, and this is the way it's handling its wind portfolio. It seems to have two different options here. It has Prime Co, which has the sort of inherited assets and, um, and, and power, uh, what have you, and it seems to have new AGL, and I think I've got this right, or maybe I've gotten more confused now, um, which has the tilt acquisition. So it, it seems on one hand, there'll be wind assets in Prime Co, which will be focused at the long-term offtake market, but there will be these other wind assets, which will be developed um, in new AGL, which will be dealing more with the short-term market. Um, why would they want to think about it that way? 
<laughs> uh, it is a good question. Uh, to start with, I think if you went and asked um, uh, um, Power, um, you know, who, who runs and who owns it, I mean, you, you'd probably find that the Future Fund and QIC uh, like to think that they run that particular business. Uh, and AGL, as I said on the, in the interview, was actually only a 20% equity shareholder. So, and power itself, as I said, is going to get bigger. And as it gets bigger, it inevitably will actually want to have more of a retail presence. So I, th I think, and so in, that, that relationship needs, will, will need work. As far as why uh, Prime Co, the Generation Co, is keeping the existing uh, wind PPAs, um, uh, it may be to, 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 do, to do with the fact that they're not always very profitable. They're actually liabilities, you know. <laughs> uh, well, they are, you know, uh, because they're, happened, out, yeah. they're out of the money, uh, but they do have repowering options. Uh, I'm, I, it's not necessarily the way I'd organise it. And, and, and I guess um, it's the difficulty is there's still so much uncertainty about how this is all going to be done and the strategic rationale for it all. Uh, is still a bit up in the air, uh, and, mm. and yeah. So, what, what what do you make of some of the talk about new technologies, floating solar at Loyang A, even before it closes, using one of the settling ponds, um, electrothermal, in um, electro. Oh God, what is it called? Electrothermal solar storage, um, possibly at Liddell, possibly also at Loyang. Um, and the various hydrogen opportunities? Uh, I don't think much of them at the moment. I think they're all pretty trivial right now in investors' minds. There are hydrogen, on the other hand, is a really big deal at the moment, obviously. And if you look at the hydrogen projects that, as we discussed on the last podcast, that um, Origin Energy and Stanwell are looking at in Queensland, I mean, th these are really big deals, you know, talking billions of dollars of uh, style investment, as is uh, CWP trying to get one going on the northwest shelf. Um, um, what uh, AGL isn't at that point or anywhere near it at, at the moment as far as hydrogen goes and, and the other novel technologies, I mean, uh, you know, they're, they're novel, they're they're just uh, talking points. Interesting stuff. David, maybe we should talk now about some of the other things which have been happening around the place, particularly interested today to see Labor starting to sort of evolve or start to sort of, you know, put the first bits to its um, energy policy platform, um, removing taxes for electric vehicles. I think we should welcome that. And also 400, I think, community battery storage installations. Um, a good start, do you think? It, 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 not a bad uh, step. So I think we could do so much more on the EVs. It's my um, overwhelming bugbear how poor our uh, vehicle policy is and why we have such poor policy at both federal and state levels. Really, the state government policies is, you know, what they're doing in Victoria is absolutely ridiculous in regards to electric vehicles. Um, so, yes, mm. it's great to see Labor doing something that's not completely silly. Uh, it makes a change. Uh, it's not going to irritate too many people, I don't think. It's not even, I think they're only talking about $200 million of cost from memory. Uh, so it's not a big deal in the scheme of things. It's not going to really change anything very much. I, uh, and yes, supporting community batteries is great. Um, uh, but, you know, yeah. it's just like uh, little dots there to appease the greenies, if you want to put it that way, if you know what I mean. It's not uh, really... Well, they're safe. They're possibly safe. Um, they're safe policy platforms, and uh, I guess I guess the test is going to be um, given that um, AGL and Origin are so keen now to embrace the whole concept of electric vehicles. Um, to what role they actually put pressure on the various governments to help facilitate that. 
Giles, um, Giles, I, I want to put in a little plug here for the Australian Institute of Energy, which is running. I'm on the Sydney committee. We're running a half-day seminar on the 27th of April about electric vehicle policy. Uh, we're going to have um, uh, Hyundai uh, uh, presenting and the New South Wales government and uh, um, uh, ANU and various other folks. So if keep an eye out for that around the place. Sorry to take up some airtime. Oh, no, that's okay. That's perfectly decent. No, look, well, I was actually going to get on to on Hyundai and Toyota. It's interesting. They've both been rolling out their electrolyzer stations, which are, are for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, which um, I went to visit the one in Canberra last week, and um, uh, one of our Melbourne people went to visit the one in um, in Melbourne this week, and um, quite interesting stuff. I've got to say, this is such, um, this is really just the start. Um, the qu big question is, what sort of future do they have? I mean, the electrolyzer in Canberra has the ability to um, charge only four vehicles um, a day. Um, even though it takes only five minutes to actually charge that vehicle, but that's its capacity. And I think the one in Melbourne from Toyota might be a bit higher, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. David, is there anything else that we need to cover off on? I do want to make mention, I guess, of CEP um, and their plans for 150 megawatt battery at the Holden um, station. Although I guess the caveat with that is that CEP have so far talked an awful lot about batteries, two gigawatts, but um, have yet to actually sort of build anything. So I, I hope it's not one of those ones which um, come and talk boldly and then disappear without a trace, but um, interesting nonetheless. Um, anything else um, caught your eye? Uh, well, one of the other things that AGL problems they've had is their crib point uh, term gas LNG terminal uh, got uh, cancelled effectively by the Victorian government uh, yesterday. Um, and so I guess that means that for gas, it leaves the um, Squadron Energy proposed terminal at Port Kembla as very much in the leading position, which it's probably already been for 12 months. So that, that that's interesting. And as far as vehicles, uh, but we're still waiting for all um, uh, final investment decision and absolute go ahead. You don't need it so much when you've got a private company doing it with lots of money. I mean, they can kind of do things without making announcements, but still it would be nice to see it all getting the go ahead uh, in a proper formal sense. Uh, we all, we also saw the GenX proposal uh, get, uh, is, is, um, Kidston Hydro, Pumped Hydro in Queensland is moving ahead very steadily. Uh, yes, that, tell me about what you think about that. I mean, they've obviously been searching for an equity partner. They haven't found one. Um, they're now raising equity. They're raising $100 million or pretty close to it for a company which has only got a value of $140 million in the market. Um, how brave, if that's the word, is that in um, in this current situation? Well, I think it's a fairly open secret. They ran a process to try and find an equity partner and pro probably ran into... They, and they haven't been able to find one, so they've gone ahead and done it themselves, and they seem to have uh, been very successfully found investors to back them. Um, so it's good that that project is going to go ahead. It's had a lot of support from uh, uh, Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund, which is great, and also the Queensland government. I think going ahead, at uh, looking, you look at the North Queensland development, it probably makes it even more likely in some sense that the... Uh, Copper String 2, which is another interesting project to hook Mount Isa into the grid, will we'll also go ahead. And uh, so uh, as far as investing in it, uh, I, I personally uh, think it's pumped hydro is losing the battle very broadly to batteries. Its round-trip efficiency isn't as good. It's not as fast as mobile. It can, can't provide all the system services. And yet neither does it offer the really extended durations that that 
gas at the moment offers for those cold winter nights where we're going to need lots of power, even if not for two or three days at a time, but not in total, a massive amount of energy. So that, that's where I stand on that proposal. And just uh, very quickly before we, we sign off, I also, you, you mentioned refueling stations for hydrogen in Canberra, I think, but um, we also saw Kia announcing a nice new electric vehicle. And I'm, I'm very interested in the straight out electric vehicle push from, from Hyundai and Kia. Uh, and also VW, which we mentioned that even though the VW models aren't coming to Australia, it's this bet the company uh, approach that they've taken that one way or another, it will influ- end up influencing us here. But Hyundai, uh, we're going to see on, on the market, I think, even by the end of this year. Absolutely. Well, that's um, actually quite interesting, David, because I'm going to be shortly leaving the premises of the Star Car Wash and Macquarie Centre and dip around the corner and have a look at the new Hyundai Ionic, which is um, on show at their headquarters, although not yet on the road. So uh, we'll report back next week. David, thank you very much for that. Um, thank you also to AGL and uh, Brett Redman for joining us today um, in a very busy time for them. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen, for your continued support. Thanks also to the listeners. And please do leave a review or recommendation on your favourite podcast platform and we'll be back again next week Um, happy Easter break keep well, bye for now Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.